Well, shout out to everybody joining us today, those at all of our campuses, those online, those of you in the room, and those of you who are joining us for the first time. Church, can we welcome all of our first-time guests at all of our campuses? I met a young lady today in the coffee shop here at Carmel named Tori, who's here for the first time, who heard about us on Instagram. And, and it just goes to show you never know uh, the power of a post, and you never know who you might reach when you just click that share button. And so, Tori, we pray you feel blessed and right at home. We say often, we are not for everybody. Uh, I guess you could gauge that just by looking at me, maybe. We are not for everybody, uh, but we are for somebody. And my goodness, we pray that somebody's you. And we pray you feel right at home here at Northview. Uh, and this is such a remarkable season. This is a fun season that God continues to do really just insane, at times hard to comprehend, beautiful things in and through our church. And I don't know about you, but I'm just, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Anyone else, you're just thrilled to be a part of what God is doing in and through our church. Next week is gonna be special. It's gonna be historic in the, the life and the history of our church. And that is next weekend is Pastor Steve's final pitch. It's his walk-off home run. And I just think it's one of those weekends that you're gonna wanna clear the, uh, your schedule and you're gonna wanna invite friends. In fact, you're gonna wanna maybe force your kids to come to church with you if you have to. Because it's one of those messages that I do believe it's gonna be a legacy moment. And uh, this won't be Pastor Steve's last time ever preaching at Northview. Homeboy ain't going anywhere, and he's gonna give me some time off in the days to come. Uh, but this will be his, his final message as our pastor, and I think it's gonna be terrific. You know, this year, Pastor Steve went on a sabbatical, and while he was on sabbatical, my wife Kristen had this idea. Pastor Steve is meticulous in organization, and he has all these three-ring binders of all of his sermons throughout the years. It's a pretty impressive body of work. And so while he was gone, Kristen pulled together a team and she said, hey, let's go through all of his old sermons and let's put together a devotional book of all of his old sermon content. And so next weekend, every individual who is in attendance is gonna get a free book of his sermon content throughout the years for you to have as a devotional. There's other things that are going to be a part of the service, surprises and just special elements. You're not gonna wanna miss it as we conclude our series, Bottom of the Ninth. In the series, we've been talking about how do we thrive under pressure? Life, it, it comes with pressure. I mean, marriage, careers, parenting, living a life of faith, it all comes with pressure. There's adversity and there's opposition and there's the daily task and responsibilities that at times weigh us down. And, and there's also this nagging awareness within our heart that we were created for more, and how do we live that out in this world that we're living in? It comes with pressure. We can thrive under pressure, and I'm convinced uh, in this season, I just feel God's pleasure upon our life because as a church, I, I just feel like we are thriving under pressure. You know, every church uh, is kind of navigating the same thing. We're coming out of COVID. There's still social unrest within our nation. There's still all these taboo things that we kind of have to walk a fill full of landmines. Nonetheless, we added to it a pretty significant leadership transition. And I had a friend, when I had told him that I was in conversations with Northview and the possibility of our family moving out here and stepping into this position, he said, you know, you should read this article that I read, it said only 4% of 
of churches actually transition well. You should really pray about this, only 4%. And I don't know about you, but I get annoyed when people try to project their negativity onto me. So I just told them, all right, well, we're gonna be one of the 4%. That's just who we're gonna be. Someone's gotta fit into the 4%, we're gonna fit into the 4%. Uh, nonetheless, this year has just, it's just been a really rewarding season. It's not to say it hasn't come without effort, uh, but it is beautiful to see what God is doing in and through our church and not just with Pastor Steve and I and Kristen and Sandy, but our entire team from elders and executive teams to the trustees to you as a, as a congregation. I just think something profound takes place in the body of Christ when a supernatural unity just makes its way through the hearts and minds of its people. And church, can we just celebrate the fact that we're thriving under pressure and God continues to do amazing things among us? I'm thrilled about today's message, and it has me thinking about a conversation I had with my dad. I had a lot of just kind of bizarre interactions with my father growing up. He had his own unique approach to parenting. Anyone else, you grew up with that dad? My dad had this way of kind of dripping wisdom and his philosophy on life into every moment, and he would do so in kind of bizarre but memorable ways, ways that would shape the way I would approach life. My dad was insistent on balling on a budget. He's cheap, still to this day. The man is just, he's cheap. Anyone else, you grew up with some cheap parents? Dad was balling on a budget. There's one day uh, that my dad burnt the toast at breakfast. Toast came out of the toaster looking black. And us kids, we started to complain about it. I'm not eating that, it's black, it smells terrible, it's probably gonna taste terrible. And this is how my dad would approach these moments. He would say, well, if you don't like how it looks, close your eyes. I'm like, well, it still smells terrible. Well, if you don't like how it smells, plug your nose. Well, it still tastes terrible. Well, if you don't like how it tastes, put some more butter on it. We're not wasting the bread. He would then take out a butter knife and just scrape off the black as if that made a difference. Anyone else, come on. You grew up with that dad or that mom. This was his... His MO, his, his mode of operation, if you will. And my question for you as we jump into this is, when it comes to your life with Christ, and more specifically, when it comes to the purpose you're trying to live out for God, what's your MO? What is your mode of operation? What is your philosophy and approach to living out your purpose? That is what MO stands for, mode of operation, and a way of also understanding it is how do you do what you do? I mean, have you ever considered the how behind someone's wow? A lot of times we, we focus on what a person is doing. Wow, that's amazing. But we never take time to, to think critically for ourselves, how are they doing it? What's the disciplines? What's the approach? What's the mindset behind this, this lifestyle and this person's life? And so in this message, I, I kind of want to lean into this idea of a mode of operation when it comes to living out your purpose and discovering your full potential. And it comes to us in a story by two guys and two guys with almost the exact same name. It's extremely annoying as a a preacher, when you have to preach a passage on these two guys. Because one guy's name is Elijah, and the other guy's name is Elisha. 
This is annoying stuff. This would be like if you were to show up to Northview and Pastor Steve's name is Stephen with a V and my name is Stephen with a PH. That would be frustrating, right? Who are you talking about? Just know throughout today's message, I'm going to reference both of them and chances are I'm gonna get them mixed up. Elijah is the mentor. He's the established man of God and the prophet that is known throughout the nation of Israel. And Elisha is this kid out of nowhere who becomes the mentee of Elijah. And tells us in scripture that Elijah is a, a runaway prophet. He's a fugitive. Because if you live for God, just know you're gonna offend some folks. People aren't gonna like what you stand for. But only dead fish swim with the current. So you gotta learn to go against the grain. Can I get an amen? amen. And this was Elijah. So this cat's on the run. And on the run, God begins to tell him, hey, I, I want you to anoint Elisha as a prophet. And so Elijah goes and finds Elisha. And here's what scripture tells us. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, and he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he himself was driving the 12th pair. And Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. This was a significant thing. It was him placing the mantle of God upon his shoulders. This, this carried weight in the moment. And Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother. Goodbye, he said. And then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. And this is a big question. What have I done for you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and he burned the plowing equipment, took the cooked meat and gave it to the people and they ate and then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. I mean, so in this moment, Elisha has an experience that just triggers such, a, man, a bizarre, a bold, a jarring response. He turns around and he literally burns the plows, slaughters the oxen as if to say, I'm moving forward with what's in front of me and there's no plan B. There's no plan B. I, I wish some of you would get off the fence in your faith. I wish some of you would stop looking at the cross so passively and you would see the one who gave it all for you and you would go all in for God. I, my, that's my desire. And no, if you're new to Northview, I am obsessed with Jesus. I try not to be an extremist, but every time I think of this guy, my soul just wells up in gratitude and passion and thankfulness for who he is and what he's done in my life. He's a big deal. And I just pray that you would lean into the possibility that this Jesus wants to do the unthinkable in and through your life. At some point, it's like, hey, no, no plan B. I'm all in. And so he, he sets out to follow Elijah. Now, what's amazing, and what happens a lot of times when we read the Bible, is we go from one sentence to the next sentence, from one paragraph to the next paragraph, and a lot of times we don't factor in the timeline. We don't know how long of a period of time took place. So we will read it and we'll think, well, maybe this is the next day or maybe this is the next week or the next month. But what you should know, and it's key, is the next time we see these two, 
isn't for another eight years. Elisha commits to following Elijah and they go off the grid for eight years and then they emerge in the next book, 2 Kings chapter two. And it's kind of this really repetitive moment. You ever come to scripture and found that scripture is repetitive? Like you're reading the same thing over and over and over again. You're trying to figure out what is God trying to tell me? Church, just know this. This is a handle that will serve you well. Where scripture is repetitive tends to be the areas we need to be reminded. God is trying to drive a point home with this moment. But essentially what happens is you have the same situation play out four different times in four different cities. Essentially what happens is, is Elijah and Elisha are in the city of Gilgal. And in this city, Elijah tells Elisha, hey, stay here and I am going to go to the next city that God is leading me. And it says that there's a company of prophets there in town and they're watching what's taking place. And Elisha says, I'll never leave you. I'm coming with you. And so they go from city to city and first they go from Gilgal and Elijah's like, stay here. And he's like, no, I'm coming with you. And then they go to Bethel and Elijah tells Elisha, hey, stay here. And he's like, I'm coming with you. And then they go to Jericho and God, uh, Elijah's like, hey, stay here. He's like, no, I'm, I'm coming with you. And then they go to the Jordan River. And once again, he's like, hey, just stay here. And Elisha is so committed, I, I'm coming with you. And after that, watch what happens. This is a big moment where Elijah is prepping him that the Lord is about to take him up in a whirlwind, which is something that I don't know if I have the ability to fully articulate all that God does in this moment. But here's how it reads. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. And he said, you have asked a, a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared. And they separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha saw this. And cried out, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. And at this moment, so he's, he's distraught. You gotta put yourself in the tension. He's, he's brokenhearted, he's grieving, he's frustrated. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. And look at this question. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Now, my job is to try to get through the murky waters of this passage. There's a lot going on here. But tucked within it, you find a mode of operation that was governing Elisha's life. He has a, a way of thinking and a way of approaching these situations and I think you and I can adopt the same ways and in this moment, God does something so profound, Elisha doesn't even fully understand what's taking place as it takes place. But it is his mode of operation that positions him 
for this. I'm gonna get you there, but know this. When it first comes to his mode of operation and his MO, the first thing is Elisha understood the power of moments. See, Elijah comes to him and he throws his cloak on his shoulders. Now, if I were to walk over to you and throw my coat on your shoulders, you probably wouldn't think much of it. But for Elisha, he, he had the intuition and he had the awareness to think, this is a big moment. Something is happening in my life and I'm not just gonna let it slip by. I'm going to lean in to what God is doing in my life. Church, I'm convinced of this. Life is best measured in moments, not in minutes. Good thing I memorized my notes. <laughs> Life is best measured by moments, not by minutes. And here's my question for you. What are the moments that have shaped your life? What are the moments that have generated momentum? See, a lot of times I don't think we steward our moments well and then we're frustrated when we lack spiritual momentum. God is always up to something. But what happens is, is you and I live so preoccupied, so distracted, so divided in our interest, we miss the hand of God that at times is right in front of us. What are your moments with God? And how are you leaning in to moments with God? And how do you position yourself to experience more moments with God? Are you a person of prayer? Are you a person who has truly devoted yourself to becoming a student of God's word? Do you truly live a life of service? Not just volunteering to make some program happen, but you actually enjoy and find delight in serving other people. Is worship a part of your weekly rhythm? Is it part of your lifestyle? Is it, is it just who you are? Are you constantly cultivating an awareness and an experience and an interaction with God? Because I find that it's in these moments that God triggers his movement and activity in our life. Church, God's doing more in your life than you think. And my prayer is when we gather, my goodness, I pray you do not show up hoping to hear a lecture. I hope you don't show up looking for an explanation. I pray you show up longing for an experience. God, I know you're good, I know you're faithful, I know you're doing things among us, and God, would you give me a sensitivity to who you are and all that you're doing in my life. Life is best measured by moments, not by minutes. What I love about it is Elisha wasn't seeking this opportunity. This opportunity came seeking him. Because Elisha knew how to bloom where he was planted. And church, I'm convinced of this. God is looking for people who know how to bloom where they're planted. The problem is we don't wanna be planted, we would rather be potted. Oh, that's deep, someone's gonna get it. Because when you're potted, you can move based on circumstance. It's too sunny over here, it's raining, the wind, it's cold. A lot of people wanna be potted. The problem is, if you live a potted life, you stunt your growth. But when you live a planted life, I'm, I'm digging my, my roots in and I'm going deeper in the things of God. And I'm convinced the key to going higher is going deeper. It's saying, God, would you just 
Would you establish my life? And would you help me make the most of where you have me planted? I think God is attracted to people who steward well. They steward their time well. They steward their talent well. They steward their treasures well. They, they steward their, their influence well. And my question for you is, are you blooming where you're planted? I mean, you may not be where you wanna be, but my goodness, you are where you shouldn't be, and by the grace of God, you have a, a future and a plan and a purpose in front of you. Church, you can't choose your season, but you can choose your spirit. You cannot choose your season. For whatever reason, this is just where God has me. But I can choose my spirit. I'm gonna lean into the possibility that God still has work for me to do right where he has me. I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. Church, bloom where you're planted. And I mean, lean in to what God is doing where God has you currently. Life comes with these big moments. The second MO that he had is a model, which I was gonna say role model, but it would throw off my MOs. <laughs> but in this moment, Elisha looks at Elijah and he thinks to himself, now here's someone I can look up to. There's that interesting question that Elijah asks Elisha. He says, what have I done for you? And he's not trying to be slick and he's not trying to put a riddle before him and he's not trying to be clever. He's actually just being honest. Anyone who knows Elijah's stories knows he's a pretty black and white guy who was bold in his obedience. So Elijah, in his mind, doesn't think he's done anything for Elisha. Look, I haven't done anything. God told me to do it, I just did it. If you wanna thank anybody, thank God, not me. But what you find is Elisha recognized, hey, but there is something in you, and God has done something in your life that I admire and I aspire to, and I want to learn how you've done it. He had a role model. I mean, who are your role models? Who are the people you look up to, the people you admire and the people you're aspiring to be? Who are the people, this is the big one, that you have given access and authority to speak into your life. See, a lot of times, the mentor-mentee relationship only works if the mentee gives permission to the mentor. You have access, and you have authority to speak into my life. It's a humble pursuit. It has me think about a press conference recently. Kristen and I were watching some football with the kids, and the game was over, and I won't say the name of the receiver because chances are maybe he'll end up with the Colts and he may need a pastor in a church. So we don't wanna burn that bridge. But he had a good game. And so they're interviewing him after the game about it. And he made this statement. It, it was so frustrating that I had to pause the TV to give my kids a mini lesson. Anyone else you've ever done that? It's like, we've gotta talk about this. Here was his statement. In celebrating and being affirmed, he made the statement, I'm a self-made individual. And I thought to myself, no, you're not. <laughs> so I pushed the pause button. 
I said, kids, we gotta talk about this because I, I know you look up to this guy, but what he's saying is garbage. Boys, you just finished football. Did you ever have to worry about rides to football? Everyone's thought about it, did you? Did you sign up for football? Did you pay for your uniform and all your pads? No. Did you go convince parents to give up their free time and volunteer? Did you go line up referees and other teams and did you mow the lawn also that you had a field to play on? Did you put the field goal in post? Like, did you do any of that? No, it just showed up, okay. Well, just know this guy's experience was pretty similar. Along the way, other people have been doing a lot for him to be in the position that he's in. He's had teammates and he's had coaches and he's had trainers and he's had agents and he has had a lot of people set him up for success. In fact, today he had nine receptions. Do you know that all nine of those receptions started with a team of coaches on the sideline with a playbook saying into a microphone the play that went into an earpiece of the quarterback who then stands in a huddle and tells the team in the huddle, here's the play. When I say hike, the seven of you, you're gonna block to the best of your ability. Don't let me get killed. I need to be back here for six seconds. The two of you, you're gonna be a decoy. Just run as fast as you can in that direction. Bro, I need you to go as fast as you can 40 yards down the field and I am going to chuck the ball on my back foot while getting hit by someone three times the size of me. And I'm going to put it right in your hands. Self-made individual, that's garbage. Not a single one of us is self-made. And the lure of autonomy is so elusive yet disruptive in our culture. Folks, every single one of us needs people. Needs people to help us develop into our full potential. Which has me thinking about my generation. I'm a millennial. We got some things to work out. (laughs) One of our unique tendencies is we are convinced we were raised by idiots, yet somehow became geniuses. (laughs) This is a unique paradox. Somehow two idiots produced the most brilliant person on the planet. I'm just telling you, we we have to be mindful of our bizarre logic because it's coming at the expense of our lives and our effectiveness and our society and our communities because we think poorly. And we think we can do it all. And folks, if you can do it all, the all is too small. Just too small. You're not thinking big enough. And you're gonna need help people to serve as scaffolding in your life. So Elisha, he says, hey, would you, would you let me inherit Like, I'm not entitled to this. I'm not demanding it, but my goodness, would you pass on to me what you're holding on to? You see, what Elisha understood is in this moment, Elisha has status. He he has status because the cloak was on his shoulder. He's been anointed by God. He has status, but he recognizes he doesn't have stature. I'm gonna lean in on you as a pastor But a lot of you, you have status. You're a child of God, loved, forgiven, and redeemed. You are more than a a conqueror. You have these things 
that are true of you. You're anointed and you've been called by God for a specific purpose. And I think you are prepared and wired for the assignment God has for you to play out in humanity. You have status. You have status. You're a citizen of heaven. You have status. But you don't have stature. You may be an infant still in your faith. And I get this sense in my heart that rather than rising up as giants in the faith, most live infancy in infancy for Christ. And my question, and you, this is between you and God, but where is your stature? Are you growing in godly character? Are you developing a righteous resolve? Are you aware of your calling? Have you honed your convictions? Do you understand how to take thoughts captive and align them and hold them obedient to God's word? Have you grown in stature? God's desire for you is to be a spiritual giant in the world that desperately needs redemption. Are you rising to that occasion? Because here's the thing. Our lack of humility is coming at the expense of our ability. Because we can't humble ourselves, we never get to fully experience all that God wants to do and all that God has wired us to do. Is your lack of humility maybe coming at the expense of your ability? Do you have status, but maybe lack stature? This is where I think Elisha, he flies in the face of most emerging leaders. Because most emerging leaders that I see, they they don't want to be developed. And Elisha looks at this man and is like, man, would you develop me? When I first became a pastor, I had a mentor tell me something that changed my life. He said, if you can't serve under a vision, you can't expect to serve over a vision. And that one statement set me on a trajectory in my ministry that was extremely helpful. But it's because I was blessed to have people who would tell me the truth and speak into my life. And church, here's what I would say to you. If you're too big, meaning you're too qualified and you're too important and you're too impressive, if you're too big to do the small things, you're too small to do the big things. I mean, if you're too big to do the small things, you have yet to arrive at a place where you fully understand what this thing is all about. And if you've not grown in godly stature, well, you're too small to do the big things God has in store for you. I love this. Who are your role models? You know, recently, Chris and I went out to dinner with Pastor Stephen Sandy. And we both showed up bearing gifts. That's just what you do for people you love. I think you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving, amen? And so we, we sit down, we we're passing out these gifts, and Sandy hands me this gift. And, and I open it up, and it's a watch. And it's not just any watch. It's a watch with a blue band. And I was like, you got me a watch with a blue band? How did you know I wanted a watch with a blue band. She's like, well, I asked Kristen, and Kristen told me. And then we had one of those spouse interactions in front of the pose, which is nerve-wracking. And um, <laughs> Kristen's like, which is such a weird request. Why do you even want a watch with a blue band? Where did this preference come from? 
and I pointed across the table to my pastor whose right arm was just sitting right before me and his watch has a blue band. And here's the deal, I'm super sentimental. I think every moment comes packed with meaning and life has so much symbolism. And I found over the last year, my prayer has been, Lord, would you let my time here be like his? I wanna watch with the blue band. Would you let my time here be like his? You know, my whole ministry, I have been compelled by a, a vision and a dream for what God might do in and through my life, and it's been something that I've always had to harness and hold deep within my heart and my mind. But over this last year, that vision wasn't in my heart and in my mind. For the first time, a vision for what my ministry could become was right down the hall. Guys, that's a special thing. And I'm just telling you, you're selling yourself short if you have not established role models who you can look up to, people you admire, people you aspire to, and people you've given access and authority to. Amen. Next MO is his motive. I mean, his motives were just amazing. And I'm gonna run through this quickly because I'm long-winded as always. But Abraham Maslow says this, human needs arrange themselves in hierarchies of prepotency. That is to say, the appearance of one need usually rests on the prior satisfaction of another, more prepotent need. Man is perpetually a wanting animal. Also, no need or drive can be treated as if it were isolated or discreet. Every drive is related to the state of satisfaction or dissatisfaction of other drives. So the question is, is why do you do what you do? So many people are just moved by ill intentions or disruptive motives. I mean, what's your agenda and what's the driving force? Okay, you wanna be successful, why? Is it because you feel God wired you for effectiveness or are you still trying to prove something to dad? I mean, you have to get to the root of what is the motive because if you don't understand your motive, chances are it'll spin you out down the road. And Elisha had pure motives, and I think it's why God trusted him. And church, I'd say this. God knows why you're doing what you're doing. He knows why you're doing what you're doing. When Elisha becomes a prophet, it was a terrible time to become a prophet. The guy he chooses to follow was a fugitive. It's not really a good gig. I'm gonna follow this guy on the run. And then he steps into eight years of obscurity. I think burning his plows and slaughtering the oxen, it was just all indication of how pure his motives are. And again, only you can answer these questions. But what are the driving forces and the motives behind your actions? The challenge is, is sometimes our efforts, though driven by bad motives, tend to be somewhat effective, so we stay with it. Which has me thinking of these paper straws that everybody's trying out. You know, I've been annoyed by this. Like, the first sips are decent, and then the whole thing is dissolving in your mouth. It's like, all right, I appreciate, I appreciate the idea here, but let's just all agree it's still a work in progress. <laughs> we have not fully figured this out. And chances are, you're, you're driven, 
And I, I would say, hey, the effort's maybe not all in itself terrible. But behind it, there might be a motive that you need to address. And understanding what are your motives. You know, what was amazing to me about Elisha stepping into obscurity and something that is true for every single one of us is divine opportunities come with days of obscurity. It's listen, if, if all you're doing is for attention and approval, it's gonna be really hard to live a life for Christ at times. Because here's the other thing. Private faithfulness always precedes public usefulness. Private faithfulness, this guy goes off the grid for eight years. Private faithfulness always precedes public usefulness. Again, what are your motives? And what is God pressing on that is driving your life? Which is what I love about these, eight, or these four cities, one being a river, that, that these two stopped at. Because along the journey, again, we're just seeing Elisha's motive. We're seeing his motive play out. These are just names of places for you and I. But for the nation of Israel, these were historical, legendary sites. The place of Gilgal, oh, let's go back to that. The place of Gilgal was the first town the Israelites moved into in the promised land. So when people thought of Gilgal, they thought of the promised land. And they come to the promised land and Elijah says, hey, stay here. And Elisha could have very easily been like, this is my moment, I'm in the promised land. This is God fulfilling his promise to me. And he could have become really superstitious and wavered on his commitment. He says, no, I'm coming with you. And then they go to Bethel, which is a place of dreams, which actually means the house of God. And he could have said, oh my goodness, like I am now in the house of God, this place of dreams, this is my moment. I have a dream, I have this desire and God has positioned me in his house in a place of dreams and he could have become superstitious and he could have wavered on his commitment. And then they come to Jericho and he could have done the same thing. This is a place of victory. An iconic victory was established and a battle was won here and this is my moment this is when God is going to establish me for the victorious life he's called me to live. And he could have become superstitious and he could have become selfish and waver on his commitment. And then they come to the Jordan, which represents new beginnings and transition and crossing over. And once again, selfishly, he could have said, this is my moment. But he never wavered on his commitment. I'm here to serve and to follow this guy and to come under his leadership. I think that's amazing. And what is really outstanding is some will say, well, he didn't waver because he was holding out for the double portion anointing that was coming his way. And that would be a fair pushback until the moment actually happens. So the moment that Elijah said, hey, if you're with me, when I am taken up in a whirlwind, I'll give you a double portion and you will inherit what you're desiring. So the moment comes. And what we don't find is Elisha celebrating. We find Elisha brokenhearted. We find him ripping his clothes. We find him crying out, my father, my father. Because when push came to shove, folks, Elisha cared more about the man than the mantle. And in this moment, crying out where his true motives are on full display, the mantle of God falls upon him. 
I mean, what are your motives? And church, I would ask you just to pray what David prayed. Lord, would you create in me a clean heart? We live in a world with so many bad motives and agendas and people acting recklessly. God, would you help me be different? Would you help me live with a clean heart? And would you renew a right spirit? God, there's some things in me that are wrong. Would you renew a right spirit within me? So there is the moment, there's the model, there is the motive, and lastly, there's this idea of more. There's this idea of more. He looks at Elijah who had lived a very impressive life, had a remarkable legacy. Elijah would undoubtedly be on the Mount Rushmore of the faith. This guy is amazing. And he looks at Elijah and he's like, yeah, I want that times two. And I was reading this old commentary because I'm old school. And there's this statement in it that wrecked me. This is what the guy said. There's no such thing as greed when it comes to wanting more of God. There's no such thing as greed. I just want all of them that I can possibly get. Like, come on, church is not a task or something laborious. Church is a privilege. I just want as much of him as I possibly can get. I wanna be in the place of God, around the people of God, hearing the promises of God. I want it all. I wanna see all that God can do in and through my life, my spouse's life, and my children's life. I wanna see him reach my friends. I wanna see him redeem my family. I wanna see God touch down in our community. I want to see a great awakening within our nation. If there's more to him, I want it. I mean, do you believe there's more to God? Church, here's the question. Is there more to God that you have yet to experience? Yes or no? Okay, so then here's the follow-up. If there's more to God, don't you want to experience more of him? Again, stop being so partial. This God is unparalleled, undefeated. He is incomprehensible. He is faithful and he is good and he is merciful and he is mighty and he is brilliant and he is creative and he is graceful and he has more in store for you and I. Which brings me to that final question. Elisha picks up the cloak And what does he say? He cries out, where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? In this moment, he's so brokenhearted, he thinks God has left him. And in this moment, God hasn't left him. Only Elijah has. Where now is the God of Elijah, and I think that's a question that echoes in humanity still to this day. And I don't think the question is, can we find the God of Elijah? I don't think that's the real question. I think the true question is, is can God find another Elijah? Church, we'll never experience the God of the Bible if we don't start living like the people of the Bible. Come on, if there's more to God, let's go after him. It's not that we can't find the God of Elijah. Maybe God's still looking for more Elijahs. Let's rise to the occasion, amen.